Hey, it's Matt Cross from UMass Basketball, and I've got a slam dunk insurance recommendation for you. I'm a Massachusetts native myself, and I know the importance of hometown loyalty and toughness. When I need insurance as tough as me, I choose Amherst Insurance. They've had UMass Basketball's back for decades, and they'll have yours too. Trust me. Amherst Insurance isn't just an insurance agency. They're a part of our community, deeply rooted in Massachusetts values. They understand the hustle, the spirit, and the pride that defines us here. So if you're looking for a hometown insurance agent who's got the same drive and determination as me, it's Amherst Insurance all the way. And remember, when you make that call or visit the NathanAgencies.com, tell them Matt Cross sent you. UMass fans, Josh Coney, the latest addition to the UMass basketball family. The energy here is unreal, and let's not forget UMass football season is revving up, and I'm all in. Now listen up. Moving can be a hassle, but five college movers made my transition seamless. Mention my name, Josh, and you'll not only score exclusive pricing, but tickets to a UMass basketball game of your choosing, courtesy of five college movers. So UMass fans, let's rally for football, get ready for basketball, and when it's time to move stress-free, team up with five college movers. Go UMass. And a big warm welcome back to Commonwealth Conversations, everyday Minutemen stories brought to you by the Massachusetts Collective. I'm your host, Nathan Strauss, and today's guest is no every day Minutemen. It is the one and only John F. Kennedy, whose name adorns the Champion Center, who's been so instrumental in the development side of things on the UMass side, and someone who's been very active in supporting UMass Amherst, UMass Lowell, and the entire system uh, since his time as a student. So thank you so much, John, for for hopping on today. I really appreciate you taking the time and and what you've done for for the school. Uh, Too kind. Too kind. So you were a UMass Lowell undergrad. How did you get to UMass Lowell, and, and what was it like growing up in, in Massachusetts or, or in this area? Sure. Um, so I grew up in a little town just south of Amherst, South Hadley. And so from as long as I can remember, I have been a UMass uh, Amherst basketball fan. My brother, who was uh, 16 years older than me, went to not UMass Lowell, but Lowell Technological Institute. So when I graduated from high school, um, that's where I went. I applied to only two schools, uh, Amherst and Lowell, and thought that at the time Lowell was a better fit for me. Um, joined a fraternity. We were very athletic. Um, I was very close to the basketball program there. One of my fraternity brothers was captain, and I was uh, the lead scorekeeper for them for uh, three years. Did you play any sports as well during your during your time? Uh, Lowell was uh, Division II uh, in everything. Um, I did not, other than, you know, intramurals and played on our uh, fraternity teams. And uh, we won uh, two years in a row the overall championship of the school. Now, obviously, uh, UMass Lowell known for being very heavy on the the STEM side of things, the, the technological side of things. And that's a, a big part of what you've done uh, professionally, but you were a, a, a math major. Why? Right. Why math? Uh, it's an interesting story. I, I I started out. My brother was a chemist, so I thought I would be a chemical engineer. And after the first semester of chemistry, um, I decided, you know, maybe this is not for me. And I did extremely well uh, in calculus, and thought, well, maybe I have a, a little ability uh, that way. My dad was very good with math. So I decided rather than uh, sticking with uh, chemical engineering, I changed and uh, went to math. 
And then after that, you wound up at UMass Amherst uh, and, and got a, a second degree of master's in accounting in, in 1976. Um, was that sort of the fulfilling of the prophecy of, you know, you applied to both those schools in undergrad and, and you wanted to go back or, or is it a, no. a fit of come back home? No, it, it was um, it was an interesting um, situation. I actually applied and was accepted to the School of Engineering uh, for industrial engineering in an area called operations research, which was effectively mathematical modeling. Uh, but at the time, there was insufficient computer power, unlike today. And so after two semesters, it, it really became kind of a not very interesting. And after three semesters, I'd had enough. So I dropped out. I worked as a waiter and I made enough money uh, in August of 1972. I flew to Europe and hitchhiked around Europe for a year. Really? Came back. Yes. Came back. My net worth was $20, uh, one American Express traveler's check. And I went back to work um, at the same restaurant after a little give and take. And they approached me and said, uh, our chef's going to be on sabbatical. Would you take over the kitchen if we trained you? And I said, why not? So I cooked full time for a year, applied to the, the uh, Amherst Business School, got accepted in the accounting program, thinking I'd start an accounting transfer to the MBA, not realizing the accounting program was one of the strongest in the country. And so I ended up getting my master's there and uh, I was very, very fortunate. I had a number of job offers all in Boston and moved uh, there uh, after I graduated in uh, May of 76. What was the first job that you had with that master's? I worked for one of the then big eight accounting firms, uh, which is now KPMG, uh, in their uh, audit department and spent six years there, eventually becoming an a audit manager and then uh, met an individual uh, in a startup company, uh, one of the original voicemail companies and went, uh, took a job as their chief financial officer. And that really started me uh, towards a career uh, in entrepreneurial uh, areas. What were the emerging markets at that time? Because you say voicemail companies, and I think I, I did a little smile there just because it's not something that I think about all that often because I've grown up in an age where voicemail answering machines, I mean, I we don't even have a landline anymore, but I can see right. why that was once like a, a really rising field. What were the the areas of-, of... Well, there, were, there were three companies um, in, in the, the business that, to start. Um, we had some interesting products. Um, at the end of the day, we were short of about a million dollars. Couldn't, and we were venture capital backed and basically merged with one of the other two companies. And uh, I left and uh, did a bunch of other things all the way uh, through 1993, when I was hired to be um, chief financial officer of a company that was also in, in the voice business, but a little, a little different, actually tools to develop voice related products. Took that company public in 1994, um, grew it and eventually left there and did a whole bunch of different things. Um, but ultimately went to work for a company called RSA Security that is now owned by Dell. Uh, we were one of the leading um, uh, encryption companies, as well as uh, third-party authentication. I ended up working for a UMass guy. And um, after a while, we didn't see eye to eye, and, and I left. And I was banging around uh, on a golf course when a friend approached me and asked me what I was doing. I said, basically nothing. 
He said, I, I know these guys, they got a really neat idea and um, they don't know how to uh, raise money and they've never written a business plan. Would you like to meet them? So I had nothing to lose. He said, sure. So from there, uh, I met the, kind of a leader. Uh, we wrote a business plan. Eventually, we raised uh, just under $40 million, about 13 businesses in a couple markets, grew it to um, about 1,000 employees and uh, very, very profitable, $190 million in revenue, and then uh, sold it in 2007 and the second part in 2009. So after 2007, um, I'd had enough and I retired. As you should, because at that point, I feel you you would have written enough white papers to last a lifetime at that point. Um, <laughs> but it's 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 very cool to see how the cool is not the right word, but it's it's impressive to see how the fruits of those labors have materially benefited the UMass campus and the UMass student athletes. When did the the philanthropical side of things for you um, become a reality in the way that we know it as today? Um, well, I'd always given uh, small amounts of, of money. Um, in, um, in 2004, a guy named Steve Rogers from uh, UMass Lowell looked me up, uh, came to visit, told me what was going on at Lowell, and um, I wrote him a $1,000 check. That was the first time I'd ever given any substantial amount of money uh, to the university. And... Um, after that, uh, I got to know the guys on the Amherst campus, Tim Kenny, uh, Pat mentioned him earlier, and a guy named Garrett Waller. And Garrett and I became very close friends, and I gave a bunch of money. And then um, one afternoon, he uh, approached me and said, I'd like to talk to you about something that could be really significant. We had talked about the concept of the Champion Center, and it was a bigger concept at the time. It was basketball practice facility, but also uh, it was the dream to house all of UMass athletics in this one space. Uh, turned out uh, it, it didn't end up that way, but um, I made the commitment then of uh, $10 million. Uh, and the funny part of it was uh, the reason it's named the Francis Kennedy, we did not want it to be thought of as the, the Kennedy uh, political parties. Uh, clubhouse and, and um, practice facility. But that's how that ended up. Yes. And, and you know, the, the JFK moniker itself is, uh, you know, in Massachusetts, particularly, I can I can see where uh, where that that would have come from. But what were the conversations like when the the eventual finished product in 2014 was unveiled? Um, what did that sort of bring in you? And, and how did you sort of engage with athletics at that point? So I had pretty much um, gotten to be very close friends with Garrett and Tim, uh, Coach Kellogg, uh, John McCutcheon, the, the then AD. And my only uh, concern was that it be done in absolutely first-class way and that, uh, that the women's facility would be exactly the same to the square foot as the men's. And as you know, it is. Uh, there was a discussion about how to connect the champion center to Mullins. And I basically insisted that there be a way that the team would move from their practice facility and locker room to the Mullins center without ever having to go outside. And so that was a discussion. And um, until that was agreed upon, uh, I was not ready to fully commit. And once they agreed to do it, I said, okay, let's go. 
And for people who don't know, and this is not, this is not um, sort of, this is not supposed to be an ego boost, but I've had the the privilege of being in the Champion Center a good amount, but also traveling around not just the A10, but to many other schools across the country. And the Champion Center is amongst the best, if not the best that you can find. Um, and, and that is a real asset to UMass Athletics. And it's, I'm sure, a, a huge sell for the university um, well, when it's pitching recruits as well. There's a there's a story. I was not there, although I have met Coach Calipari a number of times. He was touring it, and he was in the men's side walking around just kind of dazed by the whole thing and said, this is much better than Kentucky. doesn't have the same number of national championship banners, but very impressive. And somebody who was hosting him said, well, have you seen the other side? And he looked at him quizzically and said, the other side? He said, yeah, the women have exactly the same. And he could not believe it. Uh, but that was part of the, the, the requirement that both programs would be fully supported uh, with equal facilities uh, in the Champion Center. Yeah, and, and you've been a big supporter of, of both teams, but also of really all of the UMass programs. How do you stay abreast of, of what every team is up to at, at any given time? Because it seems like, you know, that's a lot to, to keep up with if you're not working in athletics, for example. <laughs> well, when, you, when you're not working at all, it's not that hard. <laughs> so every morning um, when I launch my computer, uh, the, the first couple of websites I go to are UMass Athletics and UMass Lowell Athletics. And I've become friends with a lot of the coaches and uh, support. Usually on uh, days of giving, I try to write a little check for each one of the programs that I have had a relationship with, both at Lowell and and, uh, uh, and Amherst, and um, have adopted uh, the UMass Lowell women's field hockey team. And there's a, a little story there. When Lowell went division one in all athletics, they were not eligible for championships um, was the rule. If you become a D1 school, um, they were obviously in hockey, but not in any other sport, but they could designate one program that uh, could become D1 for women. And they chose field hockey because they had been very successful, including winning an undefeated national championship season. So I got to know the coach pretty well. And she was really kind of down in the dumps because she couldn't find uh, um, many teams that would play them because nobody wanted to lose to a uh, an aspiring new Division One program, um, and so I said, "Well, let me let me reach out." So I called John McCutcheon, and I said to him, "John, I really need a favor, um, but I'm willing to pay for that favor." And he was kind of, "What are you talking about?" So I said, "Lowell does not really have anybody." that they can play in field hockey at Division I level, I'd like to establish a, a relationship between your program and theirs. And I'll give $1,000 uh, to each team, regardless of outcome, and they'll play for the Kennedy Cup. And he bought it. And subsequently, um, we now have a relationship between the, the schools who play for the Kennedy Challenge Cup and all sports where they uh, are identical, and uh, Amherst has won it, I think, four or five times. Lowell just won it last year. Lowell won the first one. And both both schools departments get $10,000. Now, I think people on online, people on Twitter, and, and obviously the, the diehard fans of UMass and the diehard fans of UMass Lowell obviously understand the importance of the rivalry between the Riverhawks 
and the Minutemen and the Minutewomen. But as far as what it means for the the state of Massachusetts or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to have two strong schools like that, uh, do you view it as sort of you know equally imperative to support both schools, given that they offer different things outside of the kind of athletics offerings? Absolutely. Um, I, I personally think that um, if you if you look at where the vast majority of young newly employed uh, people who work in the Commonwealth come from, it's from Amherst and Lowell, and uh, it's a, a story that's been told to the legislature enough that they should fully understand it. I don't know that they do, but um, if you talk to a lot of business people and you say, well, what would you do if you didn't have Amherst and Lowell? Um, they look at you like it would be absolutely devastating. We, we couldn't function. Um, they give you an example. Um, Raytheon, which is obviously a very large defense contractor, has something close to 2,000 engineers, graduates of, of UMass Lowell. So th these are the kind of, of young people that really support the Commonwealth. And without them, um, our economy would never be what it is today. Yeah, I think without a doubt, I think people get lost a little bit sometimes in the athletics component. But UMass Amherst and UMass Lowell have a lot more in common than any of the other, you know, sort of athletics powerhouses of the region and, and you know, likely in, in the entire country. State schools, um, you know, are incredibly important. And as a Massachusetts person who is a UMass grad once and hopefully at, at some point we'll get a second UMass degree. Um, you know, it's 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 very important. As far as, you know, what people can do outside of giving to athletics, is there a way in your mind to sort of not pressure, but lobby, I guess, for increased funding to these schools? Well, I think if if um, you look at, at two ways of doing it, uh, one is indirect funding, uh, that's internships for students so that they have real business and real life experiences and can then say, I am where I am a lot because not only of my basic education, but my business experience. And both schools do that. And that's very important. That has a lot of influence on businesses who can then indirectly lobby the legislature. But everybody who's a UMass graduate, everybody who is a parent of a UMass student or stu student who has graduated should stand up and say, you need to support this program because otherwise many, many students in the Commonwealth could not afford to go to BC. They can't afford to go to Amherst College. They can't afford to go to Williams. Um, they can't afford to go to Northeastern or BU. And even the kids that go uh, to both Amherst and Lowell end up in many cases with 20 plus thousand dollars of, of uh, education debt. And that's a heavy burden to carry into uh, the early parts of your uh, business career. Absolutely. Especially in a state with a multi-billion dollar surplus, you'd imagine that yes. you know, it should be, a, it should be a moral imperative to, to do things that, for example, tuition freezes or, um, reduced housing or tuition free housing for students who are below a certain threshold. I think um, it's, it's super important and it's super important too to understand. And obviously, you know this, but I think some people, again, get lost in the in, in the weeds a little bit of how you can advocate for increased athletic spending and it doesn't have to come at the expense of spending for the university at large, because in theory, the rising tide of athletics um, also correlates to rising spend, you know, for, for faculty, yeah. for grad assistants, et cetera. 
No question. I think that that many people are under the mistaken belief that the money that is spent on athletics comes from the state. It is not. It's from student fees, um, donations, and revenue. And there was a, an article written in the Boston Globe early on about UMass football and how it was such a, quote, drain on, on the university. And the writer, who I shall not name, um, but I have actually communicated with a number of times, including calling him a liar, uh, conveniently forgot that we play buy games in football, raising millions of dollars a year that help support those. And there is not a penny that the state puts in to the university's athletic budget for either Lowell or Amherst. Right. And, you know, to, to that extent, too, when you look at how far away both Lowell and Amherst are from the, the political and economic capital of the state and the fact that there are those other schools that you mentioned, the, the Harvards, the BCs, the BUs, the Northeasterns that comprise so much of the legislature, but also the sort of powers that be outside the legislature, the, the some of the media, et cetera. It does sometimes feel like there's a bit of an uphill battle for legitimacy at some times. But no question. You, you you mentioned that there is a huge budget surplus in, in, in state at this point in time. Well, when President Meehan and the rest of the chancellors submitted their budgets, they weren't even given 100 percent of what they asked for. And and I know the number at, at uh, UMS Lowell, what they're short, and it's not insignificant. Yet here we have a legislature uh, with looking at multi-billion dollar surplus and yet they're, they're not willing to uh, reach out to, to the two places that are generally responsible for funding the education of the vast majority of Massachusetts citizens and by far and away the vast majority of new hires within the state ec economy. Without a doubt and I, I know where I stand politically and but I don't think it's even necessarily a political issue. If you're a resident of Massachusetts I think you should want everyone to be able to get a high quality education. I don't think that should even necessarily um, fall on any sort of partisan lines, although, um, you know, yeah. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's important for me. I think it's important for, for me as, as I, cause I've, I've had, I've had friends who have been affected by tuition raises, for example, or by um, the other sort of more dilatory fees that come up when you're a, a student and stuff. And, you know, the, the world's an expensive place right now. But um, fortunately, there are people who are trying to to offset that. When it comes to, you know, you got to see national championships, like you mentioned there with the, the, the Riverhawks field hockey team, obviously the hockey side of things on the UMass Lowell side, they've got three national championships on the UMass side, uh, the one in, in 2021. Do you have a favorite individual season from either of the programs or either of the teams that, that you can remember? Probably the 21 national championship. Um, I was privileged to go to Bridgeport and then Pittsburgh to watch all those games. And um, the best part of the Pittsburgh experience was uh, we were, there was only 2,500 um, people at that game from, from Amherst. And we were in a, a, a place where the people next to us were from St. Cloud. And they kept saying, you guys stink. You have no right to be here. We're going to kill you. And on and on and on before the game. And lo and behold, at the end of first period, it's 3-0 UMass Amherst. And at the end of the second period, it's 4-0. And look over on the left, 
there ain't nobody there. <laughs> I had a funny experience with that game as well because I, so I was in the upper deck and it, it's a rarity for me to be able to attend games as a fan. It was less of a rarity at that time when I was still a student in the COVID year. But uh, the people in front of us were also St. Cloud fans and they were really getting into it. And so I tweeted, I said, I finally found it. The only mean people from Minnesota. And somehow, <laughs> and somehow, but somehow that, that tweet got back to them and they turned around and were like, was this you? And I felt so bad because at that point it was either through nothing or for nothing. And I, I, I bought him a couple beers and I said, look, like, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Like I was on cloud nine at that point, but it was really funny because I was like, aren't the Minnesotans are supposed to be like, you know, Minnesota, nice Midwestern, nice, but they were like, they are really getting into it except yeah. for hockey, I guess. But that was a, that was a great, that was a great experience. Um, how has the fan experience or the athletics experience changed in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years compared to where it was at before? Um, well, I think it's more professional. Number one. Um, I think Ryan's done an incredible job uh, with facilities Pete Casey at, at uh, Lowell, who's also a dear friend, uh, has done an equally uh, good job. You know, both schools uh, support their programs with facilities that are top-notch at the very high end of, of um, facilities against anybody else in any of the conferences that they play in. And I think our student-athletes, you know, totally appreciate that. I think... Um, uh, ice hockey at Amherst has, has really put uh, the state and both programs actually in Hockey East uh, uh, on the map. You know, people don't think about Amherst and Lowell as being highly, highly successful in, in ice hockey, but look at who's been at the Garden for the Hockey East semifinals and finals over the last few years. There's a lot of maroon and a lot of red, white, and blue, and it ain't BU. So yeah, and the NHL alumni as well um, from from both yep. programs. You know, it's 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 pretty impressive. I've always enjoyed the games between these two teams. UMass has had a really hard time winning at Zongas. Lowell has had a really hard time winning at the Mullen Center. It's been very evenly matched, which maybe is is exactly how it should be. When you're actually, that's a good question. When you're, do you are you able to pick a rooting side when it comes to, oh, to no, those no, games? No. no, no. no um... So when I started to go um, to any event where Amherst played Lowell, I made a point of dressing all in black uh, so that nobody could ever accuse me. And I don't, I don't clap for either team. And it, it was really funny because Jack Wilson, who's become a close friend, former president, um, really had the same dilemma. And so he chose basically to do the same thing. So we would uh, kid each other because we were the only guys dressed in all black for any of the games between Lowell and Amherst. I know. I remember last year. I think. Uh, I think Marty wore a, a split jersey. It was. It was half half red yes. and half blue right down the middle, which is, yep. I suppose, the other way of doing it, but probably a little bit less all-purpose fashion-wise than the than the yeah. all black. Uh, you're down in you're down in Naples most of the year, most of the time. Is all that year. all year now? Yes. How often, if at all, do you get to come back up? For, for games? Um, not a lot for games, usually for events. So I'm coming up um, basically next week for a series of advisory boards at UMass Lowell. 
And then the following uh, end of the month, uh, likewise, uh, to be on the Amherst campus. And I'll watch uh, some events when we're there. Between, you know, going all the way back to, you know, when you were working in in a kitchen and then, you know, climbing the the ranks of KPMG and then all the way to the 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 ranks of the VC world and the 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 chemical engineering world, et cetera, is there what would be the piece of advice that you would give to a new graduate in today's economy if you would have just one kind of tenant to 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 go by? Um I think the most important thing uh, is to understand what are the objectives of the program that you're in and how does your boss look at how those things are accomplished? It's not how you think they should be accomplished. It's how he or she thinks they should be accomplished and work towards that outcome. Do you think there are similarities there between um, the 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 financing, the world of the venture capital, and and also the athletic side, and sort of how funds are raised, how things are, how how things get done? Or do you think it's where do you I guess see how athletics operates in that in that kind of? I, mean, I think uh, there's there's obviously two ways that money gets raised in uh, in athletics: uh, revenue generation, game time uh, receipts, and then donations. Um, obviously, as well, uh, depending on what program it is uh, and what school, uh, there may be uh, university monies uh, like student fees, things like that. Venture capital is completely different. Uh, venture capital is uh, an accumulation of large sums of money looking for unique opportunities that one can grow and then either sell, as we did, or take public uh, as another experience that I've had. So they're really very different. And, and the outcomes um, uh, in some senses are similar in the sense that if you win a championship, that's one thing. If if you sell a business or take it public, they're similar in the sense that you've won in both circumstances. The interesting thing too, is I saw that there is some, there are rumors of VC getting involved in the athletics world for example, um, financing programs who are looking to to move up in conference. I think UCF was an example, um, you know, trying to to wave or to bridge the gap in what you what a school could be making in a certain conference. And I thought that was a an interesting I, I, concept. Probably, I don't know that that the fund would be able to do that, but the partners could do it. And if I'm not mistaken, the University of Miami football program. Uh, their NIL is in the $2 million range. And just recently, I heard a very interesting story that SMU decided uh, that they're going up and they they wanted to raise a few pennies. And in two weeks, they raised $200 million. That's oil country out there, right? So $400 million plan, which they will raise. When it comes to NIL now and, and how it works at UMass, um, why is it important or is it important for you to, to see student athletes at UMass and at both campuses uh, have those opportunities? Um, absolutely. I, I think it's an unfortunate circumstance that you're now in a, in a position where if you don't have NIL money, it is very hard to A, secure a young player and B, maybe harder to keep them. 
know, we lost a very good freshman guard to St. John's, um, and NIL had a lot to do with that. It becomes part of the value prop. You know, it's sort of no if, question. You, if you don't have it, then you're 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 just not keeping up with with the times. So uh it's 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 changed though. It's changed. If you when you were a student though, if you could have had an NIL deal just for if there was like a company or a business that you, that you would have partnered with, what would you have uh who would you have partnered up with? Oh, great question. Um I probably would have, you know, it was it was a time where the tech world was really emerging. Um, so what I would do were I a, a student getting out today versus then, I would look to a, a tech giant um, to build a career. Uh, when I got out uh, in 1970 from, from Low Tech, um, I really wasn't too sure what I was going to do because I had a degree in math, I could have gone to work for the CIA or I could have taught. And that was about all you could do with, with a degree in math. Uh, so that's why I ended up applying and, and being fortunate enough to be accepted into the School of Industrial Engineering on the Amherst campus. You're not wrong, by the way. It's not an exaggeration because my grandpa was a math major and a Russian minor. And there was only <laughs> one job. There was only one job that he got um, <laughs> after his time. Um, I think he graduated in '68, and it's uh, it's it, uh, he has not confirmed or denied, but it's been heavily hinted at. Um, the, the, that... There's certain initials involved with that. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, Grandma, sure. why? I was like, I was like, Rick, why do you know Russian so well? And he was like, Well, <laughs> but uh, different time. Actually, I I can't believe I didn't ask more about this, but when you we're in Europe, you know, trekking around for a year. Did you have any favorite places that you visited in, in that era of, of European travel? Uh, so I spent uh, Christmas time in, in Jerusalem, Israel. And I, I worked on uh, what's called a kibbutz. It's a special part of the Israeli culture. And then um, I traveled back across Europe uh, in the early spring ended up in uh, in London and I worked in a pub for a few weeks um, shopping um, tables and then uh, went to uh, Ireland and uh, was fortunate enough to find my uh, grandmother's ancestral home in Southwest Ireland and that was a, an amazing experience uh, to meet cousins uh, who were still there working that family farm. I would never have guessed that you were a kibbutznik, but I guess the more you know. This is why we this is why we do these podcasts, you know, because you know we I, I feel like we're we're learning a lot. Um, wrapping up here shortly, but do you have is that what is the next step for for the UMass athletics programs in your eyes? Well, I think it, uh, I'm not going to shock it with this one. Um, football needs a conference, and the problem that we experienced with the Mac was that the A-10 in all collegiate sports, especially basketball, men and women, um, is far superior to the Mac. And we would have, I think, taken a major step backwards uh, if we had gone uh, into the Mac full time. Now the football program might've been a lot stronger. I'm not hundred percent sure that's true, um, but I think it's balancing off the strength of our, what I'll call Olympic sports, including basketball uh, versus 
a, a conference for football. Now, if we could get into a, a a really solid conference in all sports, that would be the the home run. Um, but I think we're going to struggle a while until the football program kind of uh, goes from where it is now to being more successful. Of course, and it's it's tough too because so many conferences. I think the MAC is one of the only conferences that hasn't changed in some way, shape, or form in the last three or four years. It seems like every right. single conference has been chopped up in some way and um it's hard because i feel like it's it's hard from a broadcast perspective because i'll go and i'll I'll think about a certain program as being in one conference and then i remember oh no actually as of two years ago they're now in the caa or the the fun the sunday whatever it is there's there's no better example than when the big 10 recruited maryland what was a founding member of the acc and rutgers to join the big 10 and people said well, why would they do that? Oh, it raised their television money by 25%. And you think they added Nebraska because of the goodness of their heart, or they're adding uh, UCLA and USC out of the goodness of their heart. It's all about money today. And the thing that scares me the most is if we are going to be competitive in Whatever league we choose to be in, um, can can we afford to adequately support our teams in ways that attracts solid athletic performers and we don't lose them? You know, when when cost of attendance at at uh, North Dakota is five or eight times what it is at Amherst, I find that very difficult to believe that. In Fargo, North Dakota, it's eight times more expensive than Amherst, Massachusetts. But that's evidently what it is. So big money is talking. And it's it's going to continue, I think, to change college athletics. And therefore, people like me need to be willing to step up. And also, I would say, too, I think people like me, I know it's it's for young alumni out there. I know it's hard uh, to, to give. And it's obviously at a different quantity. But... I do think that there is a moral imperative as well to to give in little whatever you can, like a little bit here and there, yes. um, even if it's more of even if it's just a token. Like, I think I think totally I give, yeah, I think it's important. And then obviously, you know, at the end of the day, like, sure, it might be a drop in the bucket, but the gesture still matters. It still keeps you connected. And it it still helps. Um, so for, any, for anyone in your in your mid 20s like me, um, I know it's it it seems dumb, especially when you're if you're trying to figure out how to pay for for grad school as well. But yep. it's it it's still it's still important it's still important. If, and if all your classmates gave ten bucks, um, that's probably close to fifty thousand dollars a year that we would not have otherwise. And I think everybody um, can afford ten bucks. Yeah, there's there's nothing, Nathan, that's more satisfying to me than to receive a letter usually at the end of the school year from a student at Lowell and a student at Amherst that will tell me without the scholarship that I have from your family scholarship, I don't think I would have been able to come back to school. And the truth of the matter is when, when young people drop out like that, it's very unlikely that they're going to return. And it's a systemic failure. It's sort of like what we were talking about before about, about how, about the funding for schools, you know, 
if Williams and the Ivies and I think all NESCACs at this point are able to, to offer tuition remedies for students who come from families below six figures a year, there's no reason why a state-funded school in a state with, with our kind of budget and GDP shouldn't be able to do the same thing. And obviously, I understand Absolutely. politically it might not be feasible, but mentally it should be. Um, and if it, it's, and it, it's not a stretch of the imagination. Right. It really isn't. Exactly. Uh, if, if you're a family without making over $100,000, your four years of Harvard education is free. Exactly. And, and there's no reason why we shouldn't aspire to, to do the same. Um, I completely agree. What's the what's next on your? I know you're. You said you're coming up here for. Um, you've got advisory meetings uh, in the next couple of weeks. Is there anything, any big ticket items on your agenda in the near future? Well, it's interesting you ask because tomorrow around noontime, my family and I are getting on a plane to go to Anchorage, Alaska. University of Massachusetts Lowell is playing Anchorage, Alaska on Saturday night and Sunday night in ice hockey, and we're going to be there. That's awesome. Have you ever been to Alaska? Uh, I've fly fished there three times. Very cool. I've always, it's one of the, it's one of the states that I've yet to go to. I've got 10 left and that's one of them, but I know uh, they're also coming back East too. And on the eighth and the ninth, I believe of, of December um, to play UMass at the Mullen center, which I think is going to be the first time in program history that, that the Minutemen have, have taken them on, but it should be a great atmosphere out there. I hear it's, I hear it's an awesome barn out there. Um, um uh, Anchorage is a very interesting place, and I'll, I'll one-up you on something. I've not only been to all 50 states, I've played golf in all 50 states. Wow. What was the best, What outside of the, the pebble beaches of the world, what's the best kind of, of the other 25 states that you wouldn't expect as, as golf destinations, what was your favorite course to play? Well, there's an unbelievable golf course in Hawaii called Nanea. It's on the big island. It's kind of in a lava field and it's spectacular. Um, then there's um, in in Oklahoma, uh, Southern Hills is absolutely spectacular. Um, obviously, the, the great courses on Long Island. Um, a bunch of great courses in Ohio and Indiana. Um, I, I played on the actually was a member at the number one course in South Dakota for a number of years uh, called Sutton Bay um, and just played my 50th state, which was Montana in the same Valley that the television series Yellowstone is filmed in. Oh, was it, was it at the Yellowstone club? Uh, no, the Yellowstone club is, is something different. Uh, this was at um, a different club, but which has actually been featured uh, on the TV series a number of times. Very cool. I, having golfed in all 50 states, I think that's a that's a great that's a great little tidbit. Um, I don't think there are many people who can say that. What was the golfing like in Alaska, though? Um, you know, I, I was there with a very dear friend. We were there for a fly fishing trip and we decided, OK, um, we got to knock this off. And it was it was I would say a mediocre course at best. But it was great company and it was beautiful scenery. So we had a great time doing it. What are you shooting these days? I'm an eight handicap. <laughs> that, that 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 sounds about right. Um that's that's pretty good. Um well, 
is there anything else that you want to touch on while you're here? I'm sort of happy to to go wherever you want to take this conversation or or wrap up. It's um, the only thing I would say, um, you know, scholarship endowments, while they're not current funds, and a lot of times the campus either Lowell would much prefer current funds. Um, in the long run, building up an endowment, which really has has happened over the last ten years. You know, over a billion dollars, um, really is repetitive funding uh, that will go on long after I leave this earth. And I have a number of, of endowments that I've done, and including an endowed chair in Eisenberg. So I would encourage anybody listening, and you can do it over a number of years. Um, any amount would would be helpful, and and so uh, I would encourage. Anybody who who thinks that uh, they could help the university, if it's one year or 10 years, doesn't make any difference. Um, start an endowment and, and fund it. Without a doubt, as a, a, a UMass alum and, and a UMass diehard, I think it's 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 really important. And uh, I'm very appreciative of your time, but also the, 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 the work that you've done, the advocacy that you do, everything about it. Um, and I appreciate you hopping on here today. And I uh, hope to see you in person at some point. But if not, uh, I know I'll, I'll see you on Twitter, um, which is a, a great part of the UMass experience as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, John. And, and thanks to everyone who tunes in here uh, to Commonwealth Conversations Everyday Minutemen Stories brought to you by the Massachusetts Collective. I'll say a special go UMass, both UMass Amherst and UMass Lowell uh, in honor of, of our guest here today. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Uh, and uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Hey, it's Matt Cross from UMass Basketball, and I've got a slam dunk insurance recommendation for you. I'm a Massachusetts native myself, and I know the importance of hometown loyalty and toughness. When I need insurance as tough as me, I choose Amherst Insurance. They've had UMass Basketball's back for decades, and they'll have yours too. Trust me. Amherst Insurance isn't just an insurance agency, they're a part of our community, deeply rooted in Massachusetts values. They understand the hustle, the spirit, and the pride that defines us here. So if you're looking for a hometown insurance agent who's got the same drive and determination as me, it's Amherst Insurance, all the way. And remember, when you make that call or visit the NathanAgencies.com, tell them Matt Cross sent you. UMass fans, Josh Coney, the latest addition to the UMass basketball family. The energy here is unreal, and let's not forget UMass football season is revving up, and I'm all in. Now listen up. Moving can be a hassle, but five college movers made my transition seamless. Mention my name, Josh, and you'll not only score exclusive pricing, but tickets to a UMass basketball game of your choosing, courtesy of five college movers. So UMass fans, let's rally for football, get ready for basketball, and when it's time to move stress-free, team up with five college movers. Go UMass.